Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. When we talk about poverty in the United States, what do we mean, and how do we measure it? My AEI colleague, Scott Winship, returns to political economy to give us a primer on how the war on poverty is going. Scott is a senior fellow and director of poverty studies here at AEI. He's also author of the new report, Bringing Home the Bacon, Have Trends and Men's Pay Weaken the Traditional Family? We'll be diving into that question later in the show. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here as always. I would think that if there's one thing that we could very easily measure and define, it would be poverty in America. We can we 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 can just measure the number of poor people and figure out a poverty rate. Uh, first of all, is it that easy? Because I I think there's because sometimes I hear about multiple you know different kinds of you know percentages. So when we're talking about poverty in America, what are we really talking about? How do you think it's best for us to define it? Yeah, you'd think that would be super easy, um, but uh, it it we could take your listeners down a road of tedium, uh, the likes of which they maybe have never experienced on your show before. Which we are not going to do, okay. but we nice. will take a, maybe a few steps down that road. Good to maybe know. Maybe a half block. Good clarification. Um, so in the United States, um, we do have an official poverty measure. Lots of times you hear people ask, like, what's the official definition of middle class? We don't have anything like an official definition of the middle class, but we do have an official poverty measure. Um, and that's been around since the 1960s. Um, it essentially takes the cash income that people have, uh, including um, any safety net benefits that take the form of cash, uh, and it compares it against the poverty line, which differs depending on how big your family is and a few other things. Um, if you're above, if you're below the line, you're poor. If you're above the line, you're not poor. Uh, easy peasy. Um, well, the problem with that is is that um, much of our anti-poverty policy in the United States um, takes the form of benefits that are not. Uh, cash. Um, think of food stamps, think of housing benefits, think of school lunches. Um, the other problem is that the official poverty measure is a pre-tax measure. And so, you know, if tax rates go down and people are left with more take-home pay, um, that doesn't show up as lower poverty at all. If we create a big program like the earned income tax credit or the child tax credit uh, that, that, that puts money in, in people's pockets, even if they don't owe taxes, um, that doesn't get counted uh, as reducing poverty at all. So, so most of the ways over the last 25 years that we've actually uh, made life easier for for lower income people um, doesn't show up uh, in the official poverty measures. What, that's poverty. the measure you we probably hear the most about when it comes out uh, every year. If you're on one side of the line, you're counted as you know poor, and on the other side, how is that line determined? Yeah, it's fairly arbitrary. Uh, if you go back in, in time in the mid 60s, essentially, there was an economist in the US Department of Agriculture, um, who was working on food budgets, essentially how much money people had to spend for a nutritionally, um, minimally adequate diet. Um, so they had these estimates. Uh, there was some research suggesting that uh, about a, a third of people's budgets uh, were spent on food. So you take these food budgets, you multiply them by three, and that was essentially the the original poverty lines. Um, so, so pretty arbitrary over time. It, it gets adjusted every year for the cost of living. 
although using um, an inflation measure that overstates the rise in the cost of living. So we basically make it more difficult every year to get over this line because it's actually rising faster than than prices are. Um, but it's it's basically an arbitrary line. That's a, a real point of contention between uh, some people that are really anal retentive about this stuff um, and prefer other measures um, versus a bunch of us who say, like, draw a line, you know, keep it keep it consistent over time. Um, but then look at how many people are above or below that line. And so if I was someone who is, you know, just below that line in 1970, and if I was if I'm someone who's just below that line today, my lifestyle is pretty different, right? Well, it, it, in theory, uh, it shouldn't be. So, so they the 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 theory behind um, the poverty line is that if you're a dollar below the poverty line today um, versus a dollar below the poverty line in 1970, that you should really be at the same standard of living. Um, now, that gets super complicated because you know that gets into Oh, how much would people in 1970 pay to have an iPhone um, right, right. You know, back then? Um, uh, how do you value, you know, improved environmental quality today versus in 1970? So, uh, but but the theory is that you know that line should be the same over time, except for the increase in the cost of living. Okay. Um, it, it probably, you know, uh, as I said, un- understates the extent to which things have improved over time. Okay, so if I'm looking at the sort of the cash only poverty uh share uh versus versus one that takes into account all that we do but doesn't but isn't but isn't you know isn't a isn't a check uh how do those two differ and what do they both say about how how we're doing fighting and reducing poverty yeah so they 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 show up as different amounts of poverty um and i i should have those numbers right on the tip of my tongue but i don't i you know i think it's something like the difference between uh i don't know 12% poverty and 9% poverty roughly uh, with with the official measure being higher the 9% is is using something called the supplemental poverty measure that that does a much better job taking into account all these other things um there are problems with that too that I won't go into um but and are the, those rates better than they were in 1965 yes yeah, so so that's where they really make a big difference which which one you use if you use the official poverty measure um, then poverty is actually at an all-time low, or it was last year. Um, uh, but the progress over time hasn't been all that strong. And in particular, if you look at kids, for instance, um, you know, you get you get this finding that over 40 or 50 years, um, poverty rates didn't change that much. And so that's when you hear people say, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. You know, they're using the official poverty measure, which which doesn't show much progress over time, um, but it has all these problems with it. Um, this thing called the supplemental poverty measure um, is better. Uh, it, it only goes back uh, officially, uh, you know, about 15 years. Um, and so you can't trace it back to the 1960s. There are researchers who have tried to uh, extend it back to the 1960s. And and you do find over longer periods of time much uh, more impressive declines in poverty. Um, there is a lot of us don't like the supplemental poverty measure either. We like that it includes <laughs> a lot of these benefits, you know, that that aren't cash and don't get counted the official poverty measure. But it also has this aspect of being um, a relative measure. So, so if the middle class is getting richer and the poor are getting richer, um, but the poor are not getting richer as fast as the middle class, 
then the supplemental poverty measure can actually show that poverty has increased, even though everybody's better off. Um, so it, it conflates poverty trends with inequality trends. If you use uh, a measure that includes all the good stuff that's in the supplemental poverty measure, uh, but doesn't uh, but doesn't have this feature of, of being complicated by inequality, then you get really huge declines in poverty over time. And I think that's the most accurate reflection of what's happened. So um, uh, Rich Burkhauser, uh, our colleague at AEI, uh, has a paper uh, with several people, including Kevin Corinth, our former colleague at AEI, uh, where, where they basically show that if you start with um, Lyndon Johnson's you know, stat of one in five Americans being poor uh, in 1962 or 63, I guess. Um, and you hold everything constant. You measure income as comprehensively as you can. Um, you look at that over time. What would that poverty rate be today? And it turns out, you know, it's like 3%. Um, so it used to be 20%. Now it's down to 3%. Um, and, and similarly, you find, you know, big declines in child poverty over time if you do it this way. Um, but that is very different than if you use the official poverty measures and, and find very little progress uh, in poverty reduction over time, except among the elderly. Um, it's, so, so it seems to me that if I was a professional, you know, anti-poverty activist, I could I could come up with a number and a number that had some some you know real empirical basis research behind it. And I could make the and I could make what it's kind of whatever case I, 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 I wanted if I wasn't really pressed or if I was giving a quick quote to a journalist, um, and I, and I think the result of that is that people probably think that this country either has made no progress on poverty or there's a or a huge share of this country is poor, and I would also guess that people have no idea what we spend per year on reducing poverty. I mean, is that your sense of it at all? Or yeah, that's all exactly right. Um, so you know, it's sort of a conspiracy from both sides a lot of times to to understate how much progress we've made. Um, obviously, if you're super progressive, um, you don't want to tell the world that we've reduced poverty to three percent of the population um, because that's going to undermine all your attempts to pass a child allowance, universal basic income, what have you. Um, so lots of folks on the left, um, there's there's a tendency for them to want to shy away from this this fact. On the right, of course, it's what I mentioned earlier, you know, you want to argue that we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. And why did we spend all these trillions of dollars for no reason? Um, but, you know, when you measure things the right way, we did we did reduce poverty and the safety net expansion was part of it. I think um, it's it's not the main part of the story or the whole story. Um, but but as you say, uh, you you come away with this impression that we've made no progress over time. You come away with this impression that poverty is just rampant out there. I was on a call recently, or a panel recently, where somebody was saying uh, one third of the population was near poor. I'm making air quotes, uh, and you know I'm 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 not sure how he got that number. Uh, if you look at the official poverty line, then uh, you know I think only um, twenty six or seven percent of the population is under two times the poverty line. Um, so so if you count being near poor as being having twice as much income as as poor people, uh, that still doesn't get you up to a third. Um, but but there are these claims that are floating around out there. You, you said that, you know, although we all these programs is not the whole story. So what's the rest of the story? 
Yeah, for the so for the trend, um, yeah, I, I would say you know part of the story is we've expanded the safety net dramatically. Um, I have a paper with uh, Angela Rashidi and Matt Weidinger where we uh, show that even since the mid '90s, uh, we've doubled uh, federal anti-poverty spending, even if you don't count Medicaid, which is you know the biggest uh, program. Um, so there's been big increases over time. A lot of it has gone towards um, uh, towards working families. Um, and that's the second part of the story is that uh, uh, the, the safety net itself has, over the last 25 years, incentivized work much better than it used to. So before the mid-1990s, it was essentially, you know, just give people cash, give people non-cash benefits, but without really much in the way of expectations. You could be on these programs for a long time. You didn't have to work, didn't have to look for work. Um, in the mid-90s with welfare reform, um, we made it a lot tougher to stay on the biggest program uh, uh, that provided cash benefits uh, without working. We, we imposed lifetime limits. We imposed work requirements. The result was this unprecedented increase in work among single parents um, and poverty fell. So it was this, it was this great um, set of outcomes where we had fewer people dependent on government programs, more people working and less child poverty. Um, there were also these uh, tax credit programs, the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, which um, which were sort of the carrots uh, that paired with the sticks. Um, they, they kind of helped people that, that were working um, in low income. And then the third uh, part of the story is, as you say, economic growth, just the strength of the American labor market um, and economy over time, um, at creating jobs, um, uh, providing uh, work for people that, you know, in the, in the mid nineties, everybody said, we can't expect all these folks to work. There aren't, there just aren't jobs out there for them. turns out that was completely wrong. Um, so I, I think, you know, the last 25 years, we've hit on a great formula for reducing poverty. And, uh, uh unfortunately, um, the, the, there are a lot of folks on the left who disagree with that. Um, and so we are still fighting battles around things like the child tax credit, um, and, and the general shape of anti-poverty policy. Your description of changes in welfare policy in the 90s, is that generally accepted by people on the left and right? Is it mostly accepted, but you have people who say, no, you're figuring it out all wrong? How controversial does that now, you know, you know, 25, 30 years later uh, remain? Yeah, it remains, unfortunately, pretty controversial, even though I don't, I don't think it should, but um so uh, there was a report that came out in September uh, by the group Child Trends uh, that that had two two headline findings. The first was child poverty was an all time low, um, which was actually something uh, that a few of us had been reporting for a long time. I had a report out in 2016 that showed that by 2014, uh, child poverty was an all time low, um, and others have, have have written about this too. Um, but uh, sort of a center-left group um, coming out this report kind of makes it safe to say. And the way they made it safe to say was their second big result, which was that the reason that child poverty is an all-time low is mostly due to expansions of the safety net. Um, and they had some analyses that were deeply flawed. Um, their own numbers, if you dug, dug into it, um, uh, indicated that what they were saying wasn't actually true. Um, I showed that, you know, if, if you just look at uh, the incomes of uh, single mothers with the lowest formal education levels and how that changed over time, then almost the entire story was earnings and other private income rather than safety net benefits. Um, so it's it's still a very complicated story. A lot of folks on the left 
think welfare reform in particular was a huge failure. Um, uh, there was a book that came out uh, in 20, oh, I believe 2017, um, called $2 a Day uh, by Kathy Eden and Luke Schaefer. And they argued that there were a bunch of people in the United States living on $2 a day, that that number had gone up a lot since the mid-90s, and that it was welfare reform that was the cause of it. And each of those uh, claims have been totally uh, demolished um, since the book came out. Um, but it was very influential on the left. Uh, people became convinced that, um, you know, ask make uh, tying conditions to safety net benefits, like work expectations, uh, was a horrible thing. And that if you want to reduce poverty, the way to do it is you just give people money. Um, what could go wrong? Uh, how, how much of that is, is based on, you know, uh, looking at economic research and people's behavior and drawing conclusions? And how much of that is based on an ideological belief that if you're a human being, you should be able to live a decent life because you are a human, not because you are a working human. Again, I think this is part of the argument behind universal basic income, not that necessarily robots are going to take all the jobs, but that it's a human right, that a certain level of income is a human right. And to put any attachments on it is sort of denying who we are as human beings. Yeah, I think I think there's an element to both. I, I think at its root, it's, it's the second thing that you're talking about. I think there is a widespread belief on the left that, um, you know, there are just things that are, that are rights. Um, you have a right to a universal basic income. You have a right to, um, you know, have as many children as you desire, uh, and, and have, uh, taxpayers and the federal government, um, subsidize the cost of it. Um, and, and it would be a much more honest debate if, if that's how the debate proceeded, but I, I do think there is a real belief um, that welfare reform hurt um, single parents and their kids. Um, it's not consistent with the evidence. Um, there are endless debates about it because we didn't have a randomized controlled trial uh, when we rolled out national welfare reform. Mm -hmm. And so we can't say like the people that experienced it, you know, had these outcomes and the people that didn't have these other outcomes. Um, but but just the the pattern of trends is pretty unambiguous uh, to my reading. Um, you just look at things like the employment rates of uh, the single mothers with the lowest education levels, and they jumped like 18 percentage points over the course of, you know, four years around the time of welfare reform. Um, you look at poverty trends and and they went down quickly. Um, the 1990s, obviously, the second half of the 1990s was a very strong economy. Um, and so a lot of folks on the left will say, well, that's that's why poverty went down. But but poverty never went back up uh, to the levels of, of before welfare reform, um, even uh, when we experienced things like the Great Recession. Um, poverty fell or, or poverty rose less during the Great Recession than it had in any of the previous recessions before that. Um, it's because we have a safety net that acts as a safety net in hard times. Um, but uh, we have a. a, a program that much better supports people um, during good times and encourages them to take advantage of, uh, of in increased economic growth. So you have a new paper investigating the claim from populists on the left and right that raising a family on a single income has become harder over the decades. And those declining economic prospects for men, these populists claim, 
are making men less marriageable and contributing to rising single parenthood. So how do you evaluate the marriageability of men and what do you find in the paper? Yeah. So as you said, you know, I I sort of uh, noticed that a lot of the claims on the populist right look a lot like the populist claims on the left, um, that the economy is failing men and that's leading to these changes in family life. Um, and so I, I decided to take a look um, at, at whether there was any truth there. And and what I decided is that, you know, what we what we could do is set a threshold for marriageability. Um you know, what, if there's some level above which it's kind of like a poverty line, uh, if there's some level above which men are marriageable, uh, but below the line, they're not marriageable. Um, let's at least draw a line and see, you know, how the percent of men and their marriageable changes over time. So I, I draw a couple lines. I look at um, at uh, soul earning married uh, dads in 1979 um, for reasons I'll talk about in the paper. Um and I look at what the 25th percentile uh, of those guys was for earnings, um, 25th percentile, meaning 75% of, of sole earner married dads made more than that, 25% made less than that. Um, that was my first threshold. That ends up being uh, almost $34,000 in today's dollars. And then the second threshold was was the median. What's, what's the sole, what's the middle uh, sole earning uh, married father make? Um, that's uh, $47,500 in today's dollars. So you hold that line constant. You look at how that changes over time among all young men. Um, and the answer is that um, by the lower bar, uh, marriageability um, was 63% in 1969. Uh, that drops by just five percentage points to 58% in 2019. Uh, that drops pretty much all in the 1970s. Um, the 2019 level is still higher than, you know, in the early to mid 1960s when people sort of nostalgically think about Ozzy and Harriet. Um, if you use the higher bar um, for marriageability, then uh, then the marriageability rate actually increases from 30 percent to 40 percent, 40 percent being an all time high. Um, so so by that metric, men are more marriageable than they've ever been. Um, uh, I looked at less educated men in particular to see what happens. Their marriageability basically get the same story there. Um, I looked at African-American men. Um, if, you, if you go back to sort of William Julius Wilson in the 1980s had this story about um, rising single parenthood in the African-American community being about uh, men being less marriageable. Um, it turns out that among black men, young black men, marriageability went from about 8% in 1969 to 25% today. Mm. Um, and so these stories just don't hold up. Um, the, the magnitude of the changes we're talking about in terms of single parenthood, in terms of uh, how many young men are sole breadwinners? You know, these are just huge, huge changes against um, changes in marriageability that that just don't move that much at all, or they move in completely the wrong direction. But sort of built in sort of the premise is this notion that raising a family on one income has become, I think most people would say, not just harder or a lot harder, but virtually impossible. What is your perspective on that? Yeah, so that's exactly what I'm trying to answer with these numbers, um, and it suggests that it's just not true. I think right. the I think the popular the, the reason for the gap is that uh, essentially people don't acknowledge the trade offs that we've made over time. Um, so if a lot of people who would prefer to uh, raise a family on one income were willing to live at 1970 uh, living standards. Um, you know, that's that's no harder than it's ever been. Um, right. 
And the issue is that uh, we don't want to live at 1970 living standards. Right. Um, and that's why more wives work. Um, that's why marriage has been pushed back uh, into, into folks' late 20s and 30s. That's why we have fewer kids today than we did in the past, because what we want is change. We want more stuff. Um, and uh, and men and women both have kind of voted with their with their wallets for more right. stuff. And, uh, and and you can't have more stuff um, and, uh, and try to raise a family on one income. Uh, the problem is we just haven't acknowledged this trade-off that we've all that we've all chosen. Not all of us. It, but... Listen, uh, Scott, hey, thanks for, thanks for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jim. Uh,